hearing this tiny slice of Scripture from what is the longest book of the Bible, a book we rarely talk about in worship or anywhere for that matter, makes me feel like I have to give a little context, a little background. I'm not going to assume you ever knew or even if you did once know that you still remember that Jeremiah is a prophet, that is someone called to speak God's messages during the most tumultuous time of Israel's history. Judah's too, for that matter. At this point, the United Kingdom from when David was king, like the David and Goliath David, David was king around 1000 BC. Jeremiah the prophet is living 400 years later. So that's a while, right? What was united under David has divided into two main parts, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. But that division happened centuries before Jeremiah. What made Jeremiah's lifetime so tumultuous were the many wars being fought by all of Israel's big scary neighbors. If ancient Israel's neighborhood could be called the ancient Near East, the three biggest kids on the block were Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon. Tiny strange little Israel They had a tradition of being very good at picking the right friends at the right times. By the time of Jeremiah, Egypt enjoyed some level of control, you could say, over Israel, but it was mostly financial, like where Egypt forces the king of Israel to pay them or else kind of thing. It was not an unusual arrangement between a small nation and a much larger, stronger neighbor. So Egypt is to the south and west of Israel. Assyria is to the north and east. They too had taken their fair share of plunder from Israel over the centuries. Egypt, though, and Assyria, they did not always get along. But in Jeremiah's lifetime, they team up to confront a rising menace. The neighbor to Assyria was becoming dangerous to the whole region. Now, living in a superpower ourselves is kind of hard for us to imagine, but for Israel, they are left to basically watch these way bigger, way richer, way more powerful nations fight it out. And when the dust settles, the worst possible outcome for Israel happens. The Babylonians win. Egypt then is forced to give up their power, slink back to their own distant territory, and lick their wounds. Assyria will never even exist like they did before, and it all leaves Israel and Judah to the mercy or lack of mercy of the Babylonians. So, of course, this doesn't all happen all at once or even in one or two years because I think sometimes we read some of this history stuff and we're like, oh, so it just, you know, happens. No, it takes decades. And this is where we can resonate a bit with the experience of Jeremiah and the people of God in this time. Because we have learned, I think, we're still learning, that world-changing events like COVID or the war on terror or climate change, big geopolitical, huge world-changing events, they don't just happen in an instant. We live through change for years, for decades, for lifetimes. And it's hard in the midst of the thing in the midst of the experience, in the midst of the trauma, in the midst of the challenges, it's hard to know exactly what is happening even. It's hard to know why it is happening. It's really hard to know what it means. 
and it's almost impossible to know what it will mean, right? I've told you of this background and this context to get to this point. The confusion and the fear and the frustration and the fatigue that people feel as they try to navigate life during one of these long, drawn-out crises, a long, drawn-out pandemic, for example, or during a decades-long war. It's into that kind of confusion and fear and frustration and fatigue that God speaks through Jeremiah. Jeremiah is tasked by God to explain in the midst of what's going on. He's tasked by God to explain what is happening to Israel, why it is happening, what it means to God's chosen people of the promise, and what it will mean down the road. Wouldn't it be nice, (laughs) in the midst of all we can't know, in the moment to have God speak to us through a prophet? Like, wouldn't we welcome that? Like, yeah, just tell us what's going on and why it's going on and what it means and what it will mean. To clarify the what and the why and the how would be great, maybe. I guess it would depend on what the prophet would say, right? In Jeremiah's call story, in the very first chapter, God tells Jeremiah, now I've put my words in your mouth, today I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms. Well, how do you think kings like that? You know, if you're a king, you don't want some prophet saying, oh no, I've been appointed by God over nations and kings, just so you know. I mean, there's no doctor's note for that, you know? And appointed to do what, you might wonder? What does God appoint Jeremiah to do? To pluck up and pull down, to destroy, and to overthrow. I'm not sure anybody welcomes destruction or their own overthrow, and yet that will be Jeremiah's job to announce a lot of bad news. And so throughout most of the book of Jeremiah, we read scalding words that make it very clear how upset God is at the unfaithfulness of Israel. What is happening? Our destruction. Like, Jeremiah has to name the obvious because there was plenty of denial in Israel. Some were thinking, well, maybe this isn't so bad. You know, maybe we'll, we'll come out of this okay. Jeremiah makes it very clear, no, <laughs> that's not going to happen. We're not going to come out of this okay. In fact, it's worse than you think. Because not only is destruction what is happening, Jeremiah is like, I also have to tell you why it's happening. Destruction has come to our temple and to our whole way of life because we have turned our backs on God. It's our own fault. We have relied on ourselves. We've relied on Egypt. We've relied on fake gods, false gods. And so our one true God is angry. I could use other words to make my point better, but... Then Jeremiah has to talk about what does this mean? So Jeremiah uses language that would have us imagine that God relates to us much like a spouse or at other times much like a parent. And Jeremiah says what all this means is that God is threatening divorce from an unfaithful spouse or God is threatening disinheritance from children who've disgraced their family. It means we've driven God to the brink. But then we get to today's text, which doesn't sound like that at all. For 30 chapters, 
All Jeremiah has been doing is talking about unfaithful Israel. He's given out calls for repentance. He's talked about invasions and desolations and sorrow for a doomed nation, all because of the utter corruption of God's people. Just look through sometime the section headings that our NRSV translation of the Bible inserts into Jeremiah. It's almost comical it's so bad. The blind perversity of the whole nation is how the NRSV talks about chapter 8. Punishment is inevitable in chapter 15. The cup of God's wrath in chapter 24. Nobody was inviting Jeremiah over for dinner. You know, this guy would not be uh, the life of the party. And then everything Jeremiah had been talking about happened. The doom to come came to be. The Babylonian king destroyed the succession of kings that God had promised 400 years ago would last forever. The succession of kings that started with David. Solomon's temple, a wonder of the ancient world, the the center of Israel's worship life, the center of their whole lives was destroyed. These weren't just institutions. They were signs of God's promise. And God's promises were really all Israel had to live on. Abraham and Sarah, the the story goes that they were only able to conceive a son, Isaac, because they finally trusted fully in God's promise. Same with Isaac, same with Jacob, same with Hannah, trusting in the promises of God, letting go of their now in favor of living into a future promised by God. We call that faith. God's promised future was represented in life by this temple, and now it was destroyed just like Jeremiah said it would be. And to add insult to injury, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, removes many of the most powerful, the most important people from the promised land to Babylon. They're forced to endure a Babylonian exile. So I try to imagine what that would feel like. Like, what would your life feel like or sound like? What would food taste like all away from home, defeated, punished, hopeless. Do you remember a time when you were rightfully punished? In fifth grade, my teacher was so tired of me talking during class, she finally followed through on a threat that she had made regularly to the whole class, but she followed through on me. I was exiled from the classroom, and she made me sit in the elevator room for three days. I got to go home, but like when I came to school, I had to go to the elevator room. All by myself, except for when an adult or kid needed to use the elevator, and they knew not to talk to me, but they would just look at me with disappointment and judgment. And the worst thing was, I knew I deserved it. Have you ever felt rightfully punished? It doesn't feel great, right? Israel are exiled, they are bereft, they are powerless, and they have no reason to have any hope. When I think of what does this feel like, I imagine Israel like they're all sitting in some form of public transportation, like a bus or a train or something. Have you ever been on public transport, maybe an airport tram, full of people, but nobody talks to anybody? 
They just all kind of, you know, either look out the window blankly or maybe look down at their phone at most. I imagine Israel all packed into a tram and they're just aching with confusion and fear and frustration and fatigue. And it's into that moment that Jeremiah, of all people, speaks. The doomsday prophet that won't stop with his unwelcome but true words, Jeremiah. It's like he comes over the PA system and he's like, For thus says the Lord. I would be bracing myself. Like, what's Jeremiah going to say now? Sing aloud with gladness. Like, what? (laughs) Raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, Save, O Lord, your people, the remnant of Israel. (laughs) Like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Sing aloud with gladness? Do you see where we are? (laughs) Do you know what has happened? Of course you do. You said it was going to happen. Give praise? Like, as crazy as Jeremiah must have sounded when everything was hunky-dory, but he guaranteed destruction, he must sound even crazier now while they're in exile? Be glad? Shout to the Lord? Maybe some on the tram are feeling comforted or inspired by this announcement, but I think if it were me anyway, if I were among those stuck on that exiled tram that was obviously going nowhere, and I heard this guy basically spouting super faithful stuff in the midst of judgment that I know we all deserve, I would have rolled my eyes. Or maybe I'd have been annoyed, like just don't talk. Maybe I'd have been offended. Like, don't mock us in our desperation with hope. There's no hope. There's only pain. Look around. And that's the point of Jeremiah's prophecy in chapter 31. Scholars call this section the book of comfort. What's comforting is that there isn't only pain. In faith, They're called to not just look around, but look to God and know that what is around isn't all there is. What is comforting is that God always keeps God's promises. And for 30 chapters, the promise had been destruction and judgment rooted in God's heartbreak, that God's people become so distant from kindness and mercy and gratitude and a life of faith. But now Jeremiah gets to remind Israel of an even older promise, that Abraham's descendants will be more numerous than the stars, that they will live in a land where they will thrive, and that through them God will bless the whole world. And so just like amidst the barrenness of the cosmos, God creates the universe. Just like amidst the barrenness of Sarah and Abraham, of Rebecca and Isaac, of Hannah, God gives life anyway. Here amidst the barrenness of exile and judgment, as everyone is just hopeless, God offers a future. Creation, restoration, renewal, these are the products of God, almost always forged in the midst of barrenness, in this case in the midst of exile. That's what Jeremiah's message was to Israel then and to us now. But do we even know barrenness? Like, if that's how God works, if God's in the business of creating, restoring, renewing, and if that work is done amidst barrenness, where is that? 
What part of your life, what part of our life together would we say is barren? So I started to make a list of what you might possibly, how you might possibly answer that. I started with some personal things that maybe some of us are experiencing. Debt can feel pretty barren if you don't have a way out. Addiction, depression, a terminal illness, chronic pain, they all give a a taste of barrenness, don't they? Then I started to list community or global issues that we share that feel kind of barren, hunger, that it persists, homelessness, climate change, partisanship, race relations. And as I made that kind of list, it moved me to think, you know, not everybody's going to agree on these. Some people don't believe that climate change is a problem. And the same could be said about our partisan divide or race relations. Like, there are issues that are just intractable, irreconcilable differences among us. And when I say us, I don't only mean us in this room, but those who we're called to love, which is everyone outside this room. A good number of people, if they were making a list of places where God might be up to God's creating, restoring, and renewing work, because those are issues or places that are obviously barren, a good number of people would say abortion because it's legal in any way, while many others would say the death penalty because it's legal in any way. Some would say federal overreach is a sign of evil systems reaching into personal God-given rights, while others would say those rights claimed by so many are simply an excuse to be selfish at the expense of a community. We can't even agree on what barrenness we know together. And here I am, a pastor called to serve you all, as together we build and maintain a Christian community amidst whatever controversies or challenges pop up in our world. And so in that line of service, I'm going to say this. I believe the barrenness our generation suffers is our exile from us. Forces, really powerful forces in this world, have converged to distance you and me from each other and us from lots of people who would never come here. We are siloed. We are individuated. We distance ourselves from others and they from us emotionally, literally. We've come to like many of the divisions we create because it seems easier to have these people live in this spot and those people live in that spot. Elitism, patriotism, capitalism, socialism, progressivism, conservatism, all the isms are evidence and examples of this barrenness that we grieve. My walls are just too high to let some people in. Their walls are just too thick to even hear what I have to say, and so we absent ourselves from each other, unless it's to argue, yell, or prove that I'm right and you're not. Lots of evidence shows that we live in a especially lonely time, divided and barren of rich, diverse community who honor each other above all other concerns. And I think that's where I hear Jeremiah offering his 
announcement over our PA system. Seeing all the loneliness and still saying, sing with gladness. Praise the Lord, shout with joy. And yes, sometimes I roll my eyes at the idea that we're ever going to know anything other than our many divisions. I oftentimes doubt whether this kind of good news is possible in our times. But then, a group like this gathers voluntarily. You didn't have to come here today. I don't know that we put enough value on what a crazy, radical, good news thing it is that you came here today together. Do you feel like you did a radical thing? (laughs) A group who probably doesn't represent all sides of every argument or every part of humanity, but we are a start. This gathering where we sing and praise is a countercultural, faith-based tangible experience of community in the midst of a world that pushes us very hard to stay alone, to do our own thing, to remain entrenched in I, me, my, and mine. God creates, restores, and renews through every barren grief. And together, right now, we show that we become agents of God's restorative work, Together, we become the reason to sing, to praise, to stop rolling our eyes at hope, and to instead live there. Thanks be to God. Amen.